decoded. Welcome to this episode of the Founder Tech Decoded Podcast. I'm delighted on this episode to be talking to Jonathan Hollis. Jonathan's is someone that I've uh, followed and looked to for a while. He's constantly posting um, incredibly insightful stuff on the early stage investor space. Um, and that is as the managing partner of Mountside Ventures that he started with two other co-founders um, three years ago after 10 years of being at PwC. Um, Jonathan's perspective seems to cover a lot of bases that, um, and uh, a lot of the, um, I guess, lenses that we examine on the Pantech podcast so it is great to actually now have him on and, and have the conversation with him directly Jonathan thanks so much for joining us great to be on so I see you posting about um, this space a lot maybe more I would say it's certainly in the top top five people that I see talking about it what, what is it about the early stage space that you feel like you want to lend your voice to that you want to kind of help change, evolve? What, what's, what's motivating that perspective? I think it's the, the pain points that both entrepreneurs and also emerging funds um, have when they undergo a, a fundraise. Um, and I, I think it was, it was probably at my time at PwC that I realised that early stage companies care only about, th- care only about three things, you know, cash, i.e. investment, customers, i.e. revenue and, and hiring. Um, and I spent a lot of time in various different compliance teams across the firm, you know, doing statutory audits, doing controls, doing processes. And I became much more interested in actually providing a service that, that was that was wanted by the recipient, um, as opposed that was that was required, which, you know, is, is much of the professional service industry. You know, think lawyers, um, think accountants. The, the service they're providing is is isn't on the you know need to have um, basis. It's more on the you know someone told them they needed it, or the law tells you you need one. And so I guess that's what drew me mostly to fundraising is all the conversations we have at this level with both founders and with investors. You can tell they're super passionate um, about what they're doing, and and clearly that passion is is infectious. So you launched Mountside to sort of tackle that space, but what's the specific or the bundle of pay points that you focus on? Um, so we focus for so for founders, we focus on um, optimizing their fundraising journey, so giving them the tools they might need to um, to be able to raise efficiently. Um, we either produce you know the most up to date investor lists online for those um, we don't necessarily work with, and for clients that we do, and for companies that we do work with, we provide um, you know that as a, as a, as a service effectively, trying our best to to make sure that the founders' disruption to the business is minimised, uh, trying our best to help them negotiate the best possible terms for their business, and ultimately to save them a lot of time um, because, you know, the best founders have the highest opportunity cost. So that's the the pain point for the founders we're we're solving. And then for the emerging fund managers, you know, for for founders, if fundraising is difficult, for emerging funds, fundraising is practically impossible because the the pool and the, the population of investors you go to is much smaller the higher up the chain you go. 
because founders can can go and raise to with the venture capital funds and that's a well-trodden path but vcs themselves have an even more um you know difficult task in in fundraising so i think that the 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 i guess the the challenge is um trying to support the best founders raise better and ultimately trying to um help as many companies as possible um on that on that journey because there's still a lot of information asymmetry there's still a, a really large imbalance of power uh, between between those seeking capital and between those allocating capital so let, let's this in, um, um, asymmetry comes up a lot it's one of the things I'm, I'm most interested in and and I want to sort of buttress it with um, perspective that the large obviously we're talking about the, the early stage of the process um, when you're getting to the larger sort of Series B, Series C, you know, and beyond raises, for example, we had Justin Langham when he was at Uncapped on this, but I spoke to Justin the other day with him, and he's now at Liquidity Capital. And because of the data um, that they can look at and kind of guess, you know, the APIs that are feeding into their decision-making process, they can write now enormous checks very, very quickly. You know, like, I think it was about three, four hundred million dollar checks. And yet, you know, it's the old adage, it takes just as much time to raise that amount of capital as it does to raise your first 50,000. But I think actually that's, that gap's increased, um, which seems to be absurd. But why do you think it is still, or, or, or let me ask this question, do you think it is inefficient? And when you kind of look at the, the speed with which capital is being deployed, you know, much further down the pipe, what, what, what do you think can be done there? I think the, um, I think the imbalance is at every, every stage. I think the, the the core reason for the imbalance is, you know, between them, investors, funds, see do and see hundreds of deals, uh, whereas a successful founder, even at Series B and onwards, may have only seen one, two or a couple more um, yeah. deals if they're lucky. And so clearly one side of the equation um, is an expert and the other one is, is a novice. And so there's, there's a very clear um, imbalance there. There's another imbalance in... Um, investors understanding exactly what's market. So you know, in the, in the um, when, you, when you talked about liquidity, that yeah, I mean, they're, 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 I think their their minimum is around five million um, ARR yeah. revenue, and they have a, a fairly um, wide investment remit. You, you know, e- even those type of lenders and investors, um, they understand what market is because they do it every day. And so, and so, as well as the um, experience actually running deals and negotiating deals there's an imbalance of knowledge uh, between what founders should accept and what investors um, should argue and that's why for example we published our you know our term sheet report last year that analyzed over 200 um, terms from investors and summarized them and published them and hopefully founders and also investors can can use that when um, when negotiating the um, the the you know the, the different terms but in answer to your 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 point about the imbalance of power not not shifting i think every every raise is is a struggle in fact when we work with you know founders and helping them um, raise their a and b rounds we often get pitched much harder by series b founders because they've gone through the process at a or c they understand the difficulties and they just need a bit of support you know, they didn't have time to spend all their, you know, six, nine months building 
relationships with 100 investors, knowing that only one or two will actually invest. And half the time, most of the investors either don't have cash to deploy or are simply there to, you know, to, to perform their day job, which is speaking to interesting founders. Um, and so that that balance, that imbalance, I think, is is present at every every stage. So I've got two questions. I'll start, start with, I just want to stay on the asymmetry. Is that something that it sounds like is the focus of Mountside to sort of redress or rebalance that asymmetry through knowledge sharing, through sort of destigmatizing or sort of like taking away like, you know, like I, I, um, like, the, like like that startup lexicon, you know, uh, from Ken Belady and Emin Carey comes along and demystifies the language. It sounds like you're trying to do that at a more structural level where you're going, actually, we give as much knowledge to founders in order to correct that balance. Is that is that is that top of mind, or it just sort of comes with the comes with the job? Mm, good question. I think it's definitely one of the the key propositions. You know, our, our service generally is split into helping companies prepare, again, companies invest institutionally investor ready, identifying the the options, introducing them to relevant funds, help them negotiate the best deal, and ultimately maximise the chance of, of of a smooth DD process. And and that's the the end to end the end to end support we offer, and we we and we operate. Our commercial model is 100% at risk. So, you know, the, the founder gets all that support, maybe three, four, five months of CFO support, and ultimately only pay when the investment is in. And so, therefore, the, the imbalance um, is probably most relevant when negotiating the deal. But another large pain point and then another large, I think, reason why um, we exist is also on the um, identifying funding options. Because clearly, many founders still don't understand the various different options available to them. I think it's now clear that we're only one percent of companies are relevant for VC, but actually, there's a lot of other nuances and a lot of um, other options. You know, you mentioned liquidity, and 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 uh, and lenders are a large part of this market because you know, if a company is growing, if it's profitable, it might not need VC money. And so, you know, the the identifying the options is a large is a large part. And then another quite a significant area that's getting a lot of airtime recently is the diversity problem in in venture yeah. and, and clearly what we're seeing is that you know if we take female founders as an example um roughly there's a, about a third of founders are women you know yet only one percent or so of funding goes to them and that's a large part driven by the market investing in their primary or secondary network and, and therefore, warm introductions from people in the world, people in the market. It might be advisors. It might simply be introducers. Um, goes a long way to help address that imbalance. So we, you know, we we run a lot of investor readiness workshops. We just finished one with British Business Bank, targeting specifically underrepresented founders. And the idea is, founders come on the on a program. We 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 give them the tools, the know how, the lists to actually go ahead and do it themselves. And so I think, as well as the imbalance of information, as well as you know the the, the clear need for support, the the diversity point is a is is a big one. Um, specifically, just looking at the stats, you know, it, it, the, the diversity issue is very clear and and the reason is also clear that you know warm in, warm introductions i think the bbb did a survey recently and found that warm intros were 13 times more likely to um get to an ic um and so as a founder if you don't have the network you know that's a pretty tough statistic to um to battle with 
that would be great to if uh, to dig that out and put that in the in, in the notes. I, I I literally pushed about this yesterday, and I, I want to offer slightly different lens. Not not that the problem as you describe it isn't there and prevalent, um, but I think there is another lens that comes up through the founder tech kind of conversations and framing, which is to say. Um, that actually, if you look at uh, early on, the horizontal uh, opportunities that lie in pitch decks, um, e-commerce, marketplace, B2B, SaaS, is diminishing in, um, in quality, I think. There's a signal-to-noise problem because a lot of the sort of low-hanging fruit that those models apply to and the pitch decks can articulate are, are diminishing, um, or seemingly diminishing. So a lot of investors have this signal-to-noise problem. So what that actually does is it elevates a term that's come up um, in conversations called scalable niches. So what you're looking for increasingly are founders who are able to navigate a path into a scalable niche where there might, might be untapped market value, where they can prove they are a domain expert. And even if they're pre-product, you can kind of see that behavior and you can demonstrate traction in different ways. Um, and that those founders are becoming more and more valuable to identify because that's where actually you can really make a difference and you can really have a portfolio focus and with a small syndicate actually kind of aggressively, um, as it's in proactively target those, those people. And what happens is if you start thinking about it in those terms, then it stops, even though, yes, you can talk about regionality, diversity, impact, you can talk about all those terms, but actually what you're talking about is cap, efficient capital allocation to wherever the talent is, um, and wherever that talent is solving a problem in a unique way um, that is valuable, potentially valuable and just needs to be stimulated in order to see if that founder is the right person or if that market opportunity is right. And I think that's becoming, I think that's slightly more useful than the female founder diversity regional debate, even though that's evidently true. Um, I find that more interesting to kind of go, well, actually, I use this, this, this made-up example all the time. If Julie in Aberystwyth is like the person around early learning and dyspraxia because she's got this really you know unusual route into that and she has a path to kind of unlocking that place, then Julie should be able to find the 50, 100K that she needs to fund that next three, six, you know, 12 months just to demonstrate that she is competent in, in, in navigating a path that, that, that may, may yield a return. And, and so that's what I think is interesting. That it kind of encapsulates the diversity um, and an inclusivity conversation, but actually recalibrates it around talent. So, quite a long, quite a long sentence, but but um, I'd, be, I'd be interested in your view about that slight reframing. I think I, <clears throat> I agree with the reframing. However, it, it's predicated on the assumption that the markets are efficient and there's an all all knowing. You know, it's predicated on this lack of information asymmetry from the investors and also um, a lack of investing in who you know and and who you trust um and and therefore though that might be true the um i think the barriers and the inherent you know human the humanity of people investing in who they know and therefore the network effect still being very prevalent um i think is still there as opposed to maybe the public markets uh, where everything's yeah. out in the open um, and so I think that I'm sure that's where we're going to get to. But in order to get there, there's still a lot of imperfections. So I guess it's that's more of a, uh, you know, I see it as more of an optimal view of the world rather than what's going on right now. Because if what you're suggesting was the case, you wouldn't have such a, 
I guess, imbalance use of capital and, you know, the sequoias and index of the world wouldn't invest tens of millions at, on a pre-revenue or just an idea of an entrepreneur simply because they worked with them previously. Yeah. You to go back to another uh, point that you made that is directly linked to this, which is the innovation in recent years in, in, in capital vehicles and capital alloc allocation. I mean, a, a light bulb moment for me a couple of years ago was seeing Seed Legal's presentation on ASAs and obviously there's a seed fast, you know, showing that you could have a conversation at 12 with an investor and close a deal in at five because you deferred and delayed the complicated stuff to when it's more meaningful, whether it's that or SPVs or, you know, solo capitalists, I, I think all of that is probably the most exciting innovation alongside the platforms. But I do think that, I mean, and, and, and what you're saying is kind of talks to that, 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 that innovation in that optionality, I think is really exciting. Do, do you share that? Absolutely. And that's why we dedicate a lot of time to emerging funds, which are mostly consist of people that have built successful personal brands at large funds who have therefore who have spun out it might be solo you know gps um or it might be you know angel networks you know operators founders that, that have decided that they're tired of the old way and therefore they want to do things differently and that might that might be through sourcing differently it might be through community building whatever that innovation is um there's a hell of a lot coming out from the emerging community and and the um the the shame is that it's it's very difficult to raise um even if you've got great innovation you know as, as a founder if you've got some good innovation or good ideas at the moment it's hard but generally you can you know you can probably get the rounds over the line but as a, as a vc when you've got a great idea with very little track record um because it's a, of course a 10-year game when you're raising a fund it's um it's very difficult and so the innovation from funds is is partly hampered by the difficulties in actually getting getting money off the ground. Um, if it was easier, I think you'd have a much quicker um, cycle of technology. And I think that probably explains why a lot of funds are still operating like they did um, 20 years ago. Can you flip that because you've got such a, a wide perspective on, on 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 this space like name names if you want if not keep them generic like of funds that you think are really innovative who have got over the line who have got their capital in place like can you can you and and, and give us some of the sort of like the, the the stars in that you know in in, in that bracket of, of of new funds that you really look up to or you really admire and think they're really you know innovative sure um, I think rather than naming a couple of names, I can give you a, a, a category that yeah. um, are certainly making waves. So this category are those that are using data to its, to its fullest, as opposed to yeah. just invent, investing in data. They're, they are leveraging um, tools, you know, quite basic tools like LinkedIn growth, quite simple, you know, before and after number of employee growth. It might be web scraping, how many logos you've got on your website. Um, it might be social media presence. And they're scraping those tools, figuring out which companies are growing quickly, which, 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 who, who's leaving which, which firm. And they're using that to go after um, the, the founders. 
so that is a that those are tools specifically for seed and pre-seed investors because by the time that you're investing a and b you know those tools it's a it's a lot harder to innovate the later stage process so i think that's a large bucket you know you, again you talked about liquidity and, and others the second large bucket are those who are providing alternative means of finance so you've got the explosion of revenue-based finance you've got the explosion of venture debt we've just we just advised on a venture debt deal uh, just two weeks ago so a three million uh, facility um, from hamburg perks new venture debt fund right and and so the second category are those lenders as opposed to investors who have figured out that actually a lot of fast-growing companies who aren't you know absolutely smashing cash everywhere but actually that are growing fast but sustainably uh, are great candidates uh, to lend to so that's a you know a second area of, of innovation and and disruption and, and probably the third area uh, um, driven by odin and valban and the various yeah. different tech platforms are the these angel networks creating spvs or the emerging funds doing deal by deal using technology to, to fund and to group consolidate angel investments and so you're 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 able to close on uh on terms you know cheaper first of all because the the cost of setting up um those vehicles is a lot um uh, is a lot lower because you you know you've got the regulatory um, risk and the technology risk all factored in by the platform owners which you then pay a fee of uh, and therefore that increases the speed of execution of deals so I think those are probably the three buckets if I was going to pick, you know, the, the, the data driven funds, yeah. um, the ones that are actually doing it rather than saying it, the alternative uh, funding options and the rise of, you know, RBF and venture debt. And then some of these SPV platforms that are, that are making the process um, a lot more tech enabled. Yeah, I, I, they make complete sense. Let, let's um, zero in on the last one. Um, because I think one of what, what the last one does is, um, you know, the great promise has always been a value add capital, right? Early stage investors or angels add add value um, to that equation that sort of tra- transcends often the monetary value. We know that that's very rarely done, probably against a lot of the inefficiencies we touched on at the beginning, but it doesn't happen a lot. But I do see that that third innovation is driving small the ability to form smaller networks and syndicates that might well have a point of view and might well have an expertise that they actually can unfairly leverage and and and, and also you know amplify that founder um, properly with. Do you do you see that happening? Um, sometimes the advice we give founders is just assume nothing. Right. Assume okay. No value, um, and just be pleasantly surprised. You're still at that position, so that's the, that's the still yes. the safest. Well, I mean, the you know, if you look at the the data on this, um, I think VCs expect founders to value the value add as much, and founders don't really value it as much as they think they do. And the examples of value add are few and far between, and that's because the the VC industry is, is built on the um, on the exponential curve where only one of 10 companies succeed and therefore the the entire industry is built on only supporting 10 to 20 percent of the portfolio companies and so if you're the 80 percent of the portfolio companies which is the majority you're not receiving any value because the opportunity cost of supporting the losers or 
we you know what a better word that sure. those who aren't exiting imminently is a waste of time because the hundred and, and you know th this isn't true for all lenders it's not true for eis and vc funds it's not true for family offices it's not true for corporate corporate um vcs but it is true for branded or 400x vcs there's yep. a, there's absolutely no value for a partner spending precious time a couple of hours to a company that is performing in their bottom 50 percent bottom x percent quartile um or even or even higher there's just no benefit to them and so if you survey the, the the population of founders or if you're providing generic advice to founders and the advice and, and the advice on value add um is that only one in ten one in five companies receive it then you can't possibly expect to tell them that it exists and to rely on it i'll give you a parallel to that so it's it's it... 20 odd years ago, I started my career at, 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 in the music industry, at, at the biggest record company in the world. And we used to have on our wall, A, B, C, and A, if you're in the A bracket of artists, you've got full attention, full support, you know, every, everything that you'd want. And B, you, you might, you know, be, be present in a conversation. And C, was it was, I always said to artists, it's worse being in C than not being signed. You know, the dream is always to be signed as, a, as an artist, but you're actually in a worse position if you're in C. And it sounds like that's what, you know, your, your demarcations are like literally the same. If you're in bracket C and maybe even in B is, is what I hear you say, you're not, you're not, it's not worth it. And, and obviously the music. Exactly. Is and the majority, yeah. and the majority are in, are in A and B, sorry, in B and C that, you know, the, that's the that's just the numbers game of VC, and and of course, you know that's why it's difficult to give general advice because you'd give that advice to, to VCs, you founders, you wouldn't you wouldn't give that advice to founders raising from a you know a CVC. If yeah, we were doing a, a CVC deal at the moment. If the company you know doesn't go well, the CVC isn't going to just leave them. They're going to want to use their technology, that whatever branding yeah. risk, you know, you name it. But they're much less likely to leave them behind. Sounds like the military, doesn't it? it? Sounds like you know, no man left behind. But in this case, <laughs> the majority of people are left just to sort of, you know, pick up the yes. pieces and move on. It's kind of and it's amusing. Theme, but... It's amusing sometimes when uh, you know, especially young VCs want to be incredibly helpful, um, but I guess haven't really realised that the game isn't to be helpful to everyone. The game is to be yeah. helpful to the to the top ten. Um, yeah. You know, once you've invested and you're looking to divest, you need to channel all your energy into IPOs and into tra trade sales. You know, you might yeah. you could find a, an advisor to help you with the trade sale. You could, or you could do it yourself. You, but I mean, the energy needs to be need to be spent on an exit. And I found this quite early on. I think uh, you know, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, I attended a VC course, and this this in, investor. Huge investor, I think he was on his tenth fund, was just giving advice, and you know the advice he was giving was the reason for his success. I think I don't know, I don't know what millionaire or billionaire status was laser focused on the winners, um, and that was it. That was yeah. his he, his whole entire VC career had um, resorted into being laser focused on his winners. To continue the analogy with what with one sentence in the music business, it astounded me that even in the A brackets, most executives hadn't even listened to the album. 
as a young kid, I was like, this is outrageous. And they were like, well, we don't need to. It's not, that's not the, that's not, our opinion about this is not what's important. Us leveraging it, now it's kind of broken through, is all that we do. This is a, this is a big record company, right? This is not a, a tiny indie. But so that there's, it's almost like an even, again, that, that parallel. It's like, they, I don't even need to listen to this. I just need to leverage the, the right, uh, points in order to kind of get get the gain that I need, and once I've understood that, it doesn't really matter what the album is or the artist is. I've just got to be sympathetic to it. So, so it's interesting. I'm sure, I'm sure, it's a longer conversation or a blog post or something. Um, just before we wrap up, I'm conscious of time. Um, one last question. So, you you where do you for people listening to this? Obviously, they should. I, I I fully I don't always do this, but I fully encourage them to follow you. And obviously, I put that your LinkedIn in there. Where do you turn to to get your information from um, some of the stuff that you share? Or like, what what are your? Can you reveal your sources, as it were? Um, sure. So, I mean, <clears throat> as a as an organisation, personally, I spend probably half of it researching in the market, speaking to founders, investors, and actually publishing content and, you know, building a bit of a brand. And so, you know, for those in the VC space, many people tell you that, um, you know, brand and the the inbounds is one of the most important things, because that's where you generate all of, you know, your interesting companies, which you can then work with, and or advise or invest. And, and so, I guess the sources of a lot of the content are through conversations with investors. We run, a, we run, we do a lot of um, um, investor socials. We put on a lot of conferences. We bring a lot of family offices, limited partners who are the investors into VCs, and some of the best in class VCs together. We run a lot of panels. Um, we also do a lot of survey. So obviously, we had our term sheet survey last year. I'm just about to launch a fund the fund survey actually this week, uh, alongside a couple of other partners which I'm really excited about, where we're asking uh, funder funds for their opinion sentiments, uh, sentiment on, on the market. Um, and what are the sources? I guess just, you know, general tech news. Um, Sifted were one of our first few clients a couple of years ago. We advised them on their Series A. Um, and, you know, they're, they're a, as well as being a, an ex-client, they're also a, um, a great source of, tech news and a new funds. yeah okay well they no people don't need to do that because i think they can just follow you again all the value of you, <laughs> you of you spending that time doing that um is there anything just before we wrap up um that you would like to you know the, the floor is yours as well always, always try and close like there's anything people listening to this you know um how's the best place to approach you um the company like what what, what's the most interesting to you um as a a shout out to the people listening i'm always happy to chat i'm on jonathan at mountsideventures.com and reply to all my emails apart from if you're mail merging me or if it's purely seo marketing which we're getting a lot um at the moment but otherwise feel free to reach out to me from a founder perspective we we work with european companies uh typically raising two to 20 mil on at least half a mil to one mil revenue onwards. Um, for investors, um, love to love to connect with anyone who, who invests in companies and you can join our community and, you know, attend some more of our events. We've got a social next month. We've got a summer party in July, which of course you're welcome to attend, Dan. And we've also got our next uh, family office conference coming up in, in a few months. Um, same thing with, you know, family offices and, and, and LPs and then, for those in the community so your you know your your 
ecosystem builders, your operators. We also run a number of um, different initiatives and you can subscribe to our newsletter to find out a bit about some of the things that we've been talking about. Um, and of course, jump on LinkedIn, which is where I spend a lot of my time, probably too much. You're probably similar yeah. there. It has got better. I think there is a more there's more reward for it than there was. I think it, is, it has become a useful tool for people sharing ideas and having conversations. And on on that note, thanks so much for your time, Jonathan. It's really really good to kind of peel back some of those posts and discuss some of these themes. Hopefully, you can come to the kind of collective event um, in mid May. Um, but yeah, it's 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 been really great to talk and kind of yeah. Th thanks for thanks for sharing all of the insight as well. I really appreciate it. Anytime. Thank you so much.